if you have been reading along with the sermon card, you know we've come to a place in our journey in the study of Exodus, specifically in chapters 25 to 31, where we are encountering some detailed instructions about the principles and the patterns for worship. In these verses, God very specifically lays out some of the elements, the, uh, the where and the what and the how of the worship that he desires. As Almighty God, it is also the worship that he deserves. He is to be worshipped in the manner that pleases him and the manner which he determines. That's what's being spelled out in chapters 25 to 31. God is establishing the pattern and the principles for worship for his people in the wilderness. Incidentally, we are about to accelerate our journey through the book of Exodus because in chapters 25 to 31... God tells the Israelites what he wants them to do regarding where and how he wants to be worshipped. And then there's a brief break in the action. There's that unfortunate golden calf incident here that we'll be coming to next week. And then chapters 34 to 40 essentially repeat the information of chapters 25 to 31. Uh, 25 to 31 The commands are, they shall make, you shall make. And then in uh, chapters 34 to 40, the account reads, and they made. So it's sort of like, this is what to do. This is what they've done. The good news is, you remember that the Israelites made this pledge to God. All your words we will obey. When it came to this, these elements of worship, they were obedient. Now, these chapters in Exodus that we're coming into are admittedly uh, the sort of reading that can be kind of difficult to push through. One would not, for instance, direct a new believer or a seeker to begin reading in Exodus 25. Um, Like our scripture from last week, in order to get the most out of these chapters, they have to be read with an understanding of the larger context. Now that's where I think, since we've been studying this book for some time now, you should have an advantage over the average person, and definitely over that person who says, gee, I wonder what God wants to say to me today, and flips open the Bible and lands on Exodus 25. Have you ever done that? I've done that. Yeah, no, that's not relevant. Let's try that again. Just keep flipping until you get something you like, right? That's not how to read the Bible, and if you land on Exodus 25, you're going to have a hard time. Because without context, these are difficult verses. Even with context, they can be difficult verses because they contain specifications that use measurements that we're not familiar with. They describe uh, materials that we don't know much about. They reference artifacts whose significance escapes us. There's lots of reasons that make this tough sledding, but that doesn't mean that these are unimportant chapters in the Bible. Old Testament scholar Brevard Childs writes this, he says, because the Bible was traditionally understood as containing the very oracle of God, no word was regarded as superfluous. It was therefore thoroughly rational to argue that if Genesis needed only one chapter for the creation of the heavens and the earth, but Exodus needed 13 to describe the tabernacle, the Exodus chapters must contain multitudes of hidden mysteries calling for the most detailed commentary. So the plan for today is to uncover at least a few of these hidden mysteries to put this section of Exodus into terms that we can grasp. And we're going to do that first by making some observations from the text. And then we're going to invite the use of technology into the message and we're going to hopefully be able to visualize the tabernacle and its setup and its furnishings, okay? We're pulling out the stops this morning. We have provided for you. We'll fill in the blank. We know this is tough stuff. 
So this helps some people to attend. We want to keep you awake. We want to keep you engaged. Um, so on both sides, you'll find places to fill in the blanks and also notes if you should need them. I'll be moving right along, so you'll have to write fairly quickly, I think. Let's get started with a few observations. Uh, our text in Exodus 25 begins with a heart examination, and I say that because it begins when the Lord commands an offering to be made. Nothing tests our hearts like being asked to give. This is a free will offering. It's not a tax. It's not a shakedown. No one has a gun to anybody's head. The offering is to be received by, uh, from everyone whose heart prompts him to give. So it truly is a free will offering. It is and it has always been the case that God loves cheerful giving, not resentful giving, not reluctant giving, but cheerful giving. Since all the earth is his, and since he needs nothing whatsoever uh, from us, what he wants is not our stuff as much as our hearts. That's what he wants. People who love him so much that they're willing to hold loosely to the things of this earth, that they don't put their stock and trade in the things of this world and the riches of this world because they find their wealth in Christ, because their value and their riches are, are found in Jesus. God wants people who are generous, who will reflect in his generosity because he is a generous God. We should be generous people. And if we doubt this, we should look at who the scripture memorializes. Remember that widow who put her last penny in the temple treasury? Or the story of the woman who broke a jar of expensive alabaster perfume and anointed Jesus with it. Paul talks about the Macedonian Christians who, who supported Paul's mission work, who gave, the scripture says, not only out of their means, but beyond their means, because they so wanted to be part of what God was doing. And Paul commends them in the scripture for their willingness to give. God loves cheerful giving. And that he wants giving that comes from the heart, giving that praises him, giving that demonstrates a trust in him. God is not like the government that requires a share and puts a penalty on you if you don't give it. Uh, God is not like Pharaoh, we've seen here in the story of Exodus, who, who exacts what he wants out of people for the sole purpose of making himself greater, making himself wealthier. God is not like that at all. God seeks an offering from those who are willing to give. And as one author points out, instead of being forced to build uh, Pharaoh's cities, Pharaoh's storehouses using bricks without straw, the Israelites are invited to build God's house with the best of their gold and silver. God invites us uh, through the process of giving to help build his kingdom. Second observation, the offering that God invited them to make was going to consist of some specific items, and they are valuable items to different people at different levels. And that's always the case, isn't it? That what's valuable to one person may not be as valuable to others and whatnot. So you see a wide breadth of items here that God demands and God wants. That what holds them together is that they were all valuable to somebody. Gold, silver, bronze, yarn, linen, precious stones. Now, you've been following this story, I think, and, and you may be wondering, well, where, where will a bunch of, of ex-slaves get all this stuff? How on earth will they have gold and silver and, and all this nice stuff? Where are they going to get the materials? Where does this bounty come from? The answer actually lies in three places. 
chapter 3, verses 21 to 22, chapter 11, verses 1 to 2, and chapter 12, verses 35 to 36. In other words, three times so far in the study of Exodus, we have read about this. I'll read that last section to you, Exodus 12, 35 to 36. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they'd asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. So what that means is on their way out of town, the Israelites stripped the Egyptians of their wealth. They didn't steal anything. They asked for it. And God saw to it that, that it would be given. God saw to it that his people would have, catch this, what he was eventually going to ask them for. So here is a sweet truth, brothers and sisters, something to keep in mind, that what God requires, he provides. Some people have put it this way, if it's God's will, it's God's bill. I kind of like that. You've heard it this way too, where he calls, he equips, right? What he requires, he provides. People had everything they needed to bring an acceptable offering to the Lord, and some of them were happy to do so. Thirdly, the goods collected were to be used to make a sanctuary. That was a consecrated place. It's called a tabernacle. And the reason God gives for building this sanctuary is that he wanted to dwell among his people. And we note in verse 8 of chapter 25, it is God who initiates the construction of the tabernacle. In other words, this was God's idea to live among his people. Okay, so now we're going to start to unpack some of this tougher stuff. That was the easy stuff. Now we're going to unpack some of this tougher stuff by envisioning the tabernacle structure, if we can. This is a movable worship center, folks. This is a portable sanctuary. Wherever the Israelites camp and they're wandering, they set this up in the middle of them. And on every side, different tribes, as prescribed by God, you find this in Numbers chapter 2, would camp around this tabernacle area. And the Levites, the, would eventually become the priestly tribe, they would, they would camp in proximity uh, to this tabernacle area. Tabernacle area was set apart from everybody else and everything else by woven curtains set on posts with bronze bases. These curtains provided a courtyard. And the courtyard is described, at least in my Bible, in cubits. 100 cubits long, 50 cubits wide. And you may be asking, I hope you are, what's a cubit? Other than a unit of measurement, you can understand that a cubit is about one and a half feet. So a cubit is 18 inches. Now we can start to get some scale on this thing. We're talking about a courtyard that is 150 feet long by 75 feet wide. Not a very big place half the length of a football field. In this courtyard, made by curtains, was an altar of sacrifice. This altar of sacrifice is made of bronze. It's about seven and a half feet wide, four and a half feet high. On its corners are protrusions that are called horns. We're not exactly sure what the significance of that is, honestly. This altar of sacrifice is where the burnt offerings, the peace offerings described later in Leviticus were to be made. Also in the courtyard was a wash basin. 
placed between the altar and the tabernacle. It was required of the priests that they would wash their hands as they made their way from the place of sacrifice to the tabernacle. And the symbolism here, I think we all can grasp that. Just as the Israelites, remember, before God was going to meet them on Sinai, washed their clothes, the priest, before he goes into the holy place, needs to be cleansed. Before you present yourself to the Lord, you need to be clean. That's what's going on there. Okay, at the western end of the courtyard was the tabernacle itself. The tabernacle is a word that means dwelling place. This is fairly significant, I think, in light of John chapter 1 and 1, where it talks of Jesus and the Word became flesh. And what did he do? He dwelt among us. In other words, Jesus came and tabernacled. He did. It's also called in Scripture the tent of the meeting, but it wasn't very large. It's about 30 feet long, 10 feet wide, 15 feet high. I used to envision this tent of meeting or just that phraseology, tent of meeting, that's where everybody goes to meet. That's not what's happening there. There's not enough room in that little tent, 30 by 15 by 10, for everybody to meet. That's not what's happening there. The tabernacle itself is divided into two rooms. The first is known as the holy place. The second is known as the holy of holies. Some people call it the most holy place. And these two spaces are divided by a curtain. Now, chapter 26 of Exodus describes the curtains of the tabernacle, the outermost that are simply protective. The innermost, however, especially described with blue, purple, and scarlet thread and uh, skillfully embroidered cherry beam, angels. So Tremper Longman uh, defines their significance. He says this, as we imagine ourselves standing in the tabernacle and looking up, we can understand the significance of the blue roof of the flying cherubim. We are in heaven. The tabernacle is heaven on earth. The author of the book of Hebrews understood this when he stated concerning the high priests of the Old Testament, they serve in a system of worship that is only a copy, a shadow of the real one in heaven. The tabernacle is in some ways a replication of the worship of God in heaven. Heaven come to earth. Both rooms in the tent of meeting contain furniture. The first section, the holy place, was furnished with a lampstand. It's going to be necessary to have a light in there. The light was provided by a menorah. The menorah is made out of one piece of pure gold. It's very ornate. It had a center stem, six branches going out, seven lights in all. And the lampstand is made of gold, and so were all the accessories that were required to tend it. And it was filled with clear olive oil from pressed olives. And Aaron and his sons are to keep the lamps burning day and night. So there's a lampstand in there. And in that same room, there's an altar of incense. One and a half feet square, three feet high, covered again in pure gold. The altar of incense was placed just outside the veil that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the tabernacle. And the incense that was to be burned on the altar was prepared with a special formula it was for the Lord and no other incense was to be burned on it I told the folks earlier when I began studying Exodus in preparation for this series quite a while ago now I was making my way through the book a few times and I scribble notes as I go questions that I have somewhere along the line I noted just the other day that I had written who's carrying all this stuff 
I don't know what you think of when you read the Bible. I think I think some pretty weird thoughts, but it's, man, all this stuff is made of gold. It's got to be heavy as all get out, and yet it's a portable sanctuary. So they're moving it in, they're moving it out, they're taking it up, they're taking it down. Anyway, there were plenty of people to carry things. In fact, as you read through the details, often you'll read about how these uh, had these hooks or circles on the side, rings, where you could slide poles through and lug the heavy stuff. So... Bible answers itself, doesn't it? Also in the room, the most holy place was a table of the bread of the presence. Now the table's relatively small, three feet long, a foot and a half wide, 27 inches high. The table's made of acacia wood overlaid with pure gold. It has gold rings on the side. Dishes, bowls, pitchers, everything on the table's made of pure gold. Get the idea that we're looking at a very expensive, precious place. Twelve loaves of bread were to be set regularly on the table, and the 12 loaves symbolized the 12 tribes of Israel presented to God, living in the presence of the Lord. The second section of the tabernacle is the most holy place, the Holy of Holies. So that's not a lot of furniture in the holy place. When we get to the Holy of Holies, it contains only one item. And that is the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant is a box. It's a about 45 inches long, 27 inches wide, 27 inches high. Made of acacia wood overlaid with pure gold. It had gold rings on its side through which poles were inserted to carry the ark without ever having to touch it. If you've read your scripture, then you understand uh, there is an occasion where somebody touched the ark and they, did, they shouldn't have done that because what happened to them? They died. The ark itself is a container inside it held stone tablets. The Ten Commandments, which would be the terms of the covenant between God and Israel. Hebrews 9.4 also tells us the ark contained a golden jar or urn of manna and also had Aaron's rod in there. The ark is placed in the middle of the Holy of Holies, the most sacred space in the tabernacle. This is the place of God's presence. 1 Chronicles 28.2 describes it as God's footstool. Gold covering of the ark is called the mercy seat. The mercy seat. And as part of its construction, again of gold, are two cherubim with outstretched wings. And they're facing each other. And they're facing also the mercy seat, which means that their heads are bowed before the glory of the Lord, which is presumably above them. And that sort of takes us back to Exodus 24 and the passage that we didn't uh, get all the way through last week where the elders of Israel are, are invited up the mountain and after the, after the sacrifice, they go up the mountain and they see God. But what they describe is not God, is it? It's what God is standing on. You look at that passage in Exodus 24, you get a description of all that God is standing on, the sapphire, the lapis lazuli, the trying to describe that splendor. And, and scholars sort of think, that yes, they may have gone up there to see God in a way, but they had their heads bowed, and this is what they can see. And so similarly, the cherubim, with God's presence above them, are, are on the top of the mercy seat with their wings outstretched to one another, but their heads are bowed down in worship. Once a year, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies, and on behalf of the nation, he would apply the blood of sacrifice to the mercy seat the atoning of Israel's sin. Now that concludes the verbal tour of the tabernacle area and the tabernacle and its furnishings. 
Now, for a few minutes, if all goes well, we're going to take a visual tour, and then we're going to wrap up with a few comments. So, see if this, here we go. You've heard it, you've seen it, and it may be more information than you care to have about these chapters, but I want to flesh out a few things for just a few minutes together now. This stuff is in the scripture for a reason. 
What is the theological significance of the tabernacle? Why do we have all this information about it? And what have we just read and what does it mean? In other words, how does Exodus 25 to 31 speak to a single mother who's trying to make life work? Or what does it have to say to a recent retiree who's trying to figure out what to do? Or a, or a genuine seeker of God's truth who came to worship in this church today to see if there's anything whatsoever to do with this God thing. How does this scripture speak? What does it say? What are you hearing? What have you heard today? What have you seen? And then we're just going to talk about it for a few minutes and then we're going to sing and be on our way. What's the theological significance of the passage that we just looked at. Order. Certainly is theme of order. God is a God of order. And the scripture says he is not a God of chaos. He is a God of order. So certainly order is a theme. What else? Provides for our needs. Absolutely. An example, Galen Yeah. 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 Rob. God is holy, and we are called to be holy. Um, he sure is, and we sure are. He's supposed. He is. He's to be loved and feared. Megan, attention to detail. God's attention to detail. Uh, amazing. What's that? They were moving, and He was moving with them. Mobile, spreading the word. That's how they're going to be a kingdom of priests. You're exactly right, Kermit. It, yeah, it, it points to Jesus. It prefigures Christ. We've talked a bit about the need of atonement through, through blood, uh, and it certainly does that. It points us to Jesus. <laughs> I love that. It points to how complicated salvation is without Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's a lot of hoops here. Yes. Anything else? God wants to be with us. Absolutely. Yes. It, yes, 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 you know, you're right, you're right. So, so when, when Israel uh, traveled, it had the tabernacle, the portable, movable sanctuary. When Israel became established and became a nation, Israel became resident, then there was a temple. God became resident. Then through Jesus, when the veil is torn, access is given to all through the Holy Spirit, and where's the temple? We become the temple. God is building his church, right? Peter calls it spiritual stones. We become the temple of the Holy Spirit. Again. <laughs> Should we really open the curtain? So I didn't get into the priestly garments, right, with Aaron. 
But the priestly garments, they're all very symbolic as well. But I, I probably try to take into account how much any of us can stand of some of these details because without tying them together, it can be tough. But when that priest, that high priest would go in to make atonement, actually had bells on his garments to know uh, if he was still moving around in there because it was such a fearful thing to go into God. Um, and this is something that we've actually covered so far in Exodus, that God is unapproachable holiness. Remember Sinai, he said, you cannot go on this mountain. If, if you or even an animal touches it, what's going to happen to them? They're going to die, right? And so why does God fence that mountain? Is it because he doesn't want the Israelites to climb up and see things? It's, it's for their good. It's, not, it's, it's for their good. It's for their preservation. He's unapproachable holiness, right? And here, here, there's a veil. And again, the high priest can only go in there once a year. And that with blood, that with blood, which acknowledges the sin that has been paid for and now is being atoned, right? Again, God is holy and you can't approach him on just any terms. You can't just skip into his presence like that. Where does this come from? This all comes back to the Garden of Eden, folks, where, where man and woman walked with God, but they sinned. And then a holy God couldn't, couldn't commune any longer with unholy people, and he is unapproachable holiness, and they are sinful people. It goes way back there. Now, in the beginning, here's the point, I think, that was made that God wants to be with his people. And this is something that we have to remember. This, is, this I think, is how it applies to everyone for sure. It has always been God's desire to have a relationship with people. Always. The problem is not that God doesn't want anything to do with us. The problem is we don't want anything to do with God. The problem is that we want to be self-governing. We want to be our own gods. It isn't that God isn't interested in us. It's that we are not interested in him because he will inconvenience our style because he might not approve of what we want to do. We don't want to bow before anybody, do we? God has sought us. He was with Adam and Eve and sin separated them. He comes now and says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to live with you. I'm going to be among you. And then, of course, this is all comes to fruition in Jesus. It all comes to fruition in Jesus, who came and tabernacled among us again. And it comes to an ultimate end when? When there's a new heaven, when there's a new earth, when the dwelling of God will be with man. That's what the Bible says. But we should, for everybody here has to understand how much God loves you and wants you to be in relationship with him. But there is, because we are sinful, only one way to be in right relationship with God. And the Bible tells us what it is. It is through the shed blood. Somebody, something has to atone for our sin. And in those days, it, it was the animal. And when Jesus came, the scripture says, he became sin. 
for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. He atoned for our sin. Then he made the way by blood for us to come into a relationship, an eternal relationship with God. And so when we say, as we do as Christians, Jesus is the only way to the Father. People in the world hear that as exclusive, as mean, as discounting the good of anybody or anything else. But this is what the Bible is teaching. You come to God by the blood of his son. Dead for you. Come by your own work. You don't come by your own merit. You don't come by your good thinking or anything like that. You come one way. So when the Bible says that the way is narrow, telling the absolute truth, there is one way. From us to the Father through the blood of Jesus Christ. So that's what the tabernacle has to do with all of us. It points us to Jesus. Anybody have any further thoughts? Yes, sir. He does not make junk. Yes. Heaven on earth. Worship, worship is heaven on earth. So when people think, oh, I don't know what I'm going to do for eternity, we're going to be floating around with a harp and a halo. You're going to be worshiping God. You're going to be doing what Adam and Eve were doing in the first place. I think you're going to have your own garden. I hope I get to grow strawberries. It's going to be... <laughs> work in, in this new heaven, in this new earth. But it's going to be all healthy. There's no more sin. There's no more struggle. There's no more pain. There's no need for a sun. Literally the sun, because God will be the light. <laughs> so yeah, all that stuff is so symbolic. The washing, the blood, the bread. Who is Jesus? The bread of life. The light. Who is Jesus? The light of the world. The ark containing God's truth, God's power, God's provision. The ark which itself took a beating at one point when the Israelites were disobedient and worshipped idols. The ark took the punishment. Who took our punishment? Jesus. So Reverend Charles is right. There, there are... Countless hidden mysteries in a piece of scripture that looks bland or boring or irrelevant. And it surely is not. So, I kind of think that when we study the scripture, we should major on the majors, minor on the minors, and stick with what's clear. <clears throat> Those things that aren't clear, we can't talk about. But one thing that is clear is that the Lord commands his people in worship to sing and to praise. So let's do that and close our worship out. One more song. This is page 160 if you're looking in your hymnal. 